Welcome to the HODLcast. Today we have very special guest, um, Amber Scott, CEO of Outlier Compliance. Amber, thank you so much for taking the time out today to to speak with us about, you know, all things Canadian compliance related, which is uh, pretty topical at the moment. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a difficult topic. Canadians aren't usually this over-the-top exciting um, as we are right now. So um, I, I will try my best to answer questions and uh, diffuse some of the FUD that's out there. Sounds good. Well, first off, um, can you just give a little background about yourself, you know, how, how you got involved in the crypto space and what your role is like as a compliance, um, you know, professional in the Canadian landscape? Sure. Um, I, I always say that the shorthand for what Outlier does is that we try to keep people out of trouble. Um, specifically in the space of anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, uh, privacy and regulatory compliance. We've been working in the crypto space and accepting payments in Bitcoin since 2013. Um, Please don't be all that impressed by this if you're hearing me say that for the first time. It's not because I had any prescience. It's because uh, someone asked me to update a risk assessment and it involved Bitcoin and I had at the time just read about it and wired. And so for me to understand something, I have to be able to have my hands on it and play with it um, and be forced to transact in it. And that was the beginning of, uh, of my love affair with Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm lucky to be surrounded by a, a staff that's also very enthusiastic um, about the space. Oh, that's awesome. And I know we met at a conference in Texas many years ago, and you've been on the, well, I guess probably four four years ago now, 2018, I think it was. And I've had you on as a guest two other times, so I'm uh, glad to have you back again. And I always find you, you're one of the, you know, most knowledgeable people I've ever spoken with on on not only the Canadian laws, but you also are very well versed in the in the U.S. regulations as well. So I'm excited to speak with you about this today. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so what what have you seen in the last you know say two or three years in the Canadian crypto environment? Like how has it grown, and what what kind of uh, businesses are you are you finding you're working with more so these days? Uh, So there's been a big evolution in the last few years. Um, Dealers in virtual currency are regulated as money services businesses. And since 2021, we're actually seeing a lot of businesses now starting to be regulated as well if they're doing custody as securities dealers. So we still have um, some companies that will only ever just be money, or I shouldn't say only ever, but for now are, are money service businesses um, and that's the only designation that applies that are doing non-custodial services. So over-the-counter trading desks, uh, Bitcoin ATMs, and those type of businesses. And then as soon as there's a, cus- a custodial aspect, so custody of crypto specifically, then securities uh, regulators have become involved. And that's been a really interesting path in that there's a lot more that you have to do as a securities dealer than um, what you would have to do as a money service business in terms of insurance, in terms of audited financial statements, in terms of other regulatory compliance. So 
Um, a lot of businesses are figuring out how to do that. We have we have seen, unfortunately, there there's been some companies, some U.S. companies that I'd love to see do business here that have said we're going to wait and see how this goes with the securities regime uh, because it it all is very new. And so right now, for companies that are on that path, it really takes interaction with a securities lawyer because the securities legislation wasn't written with crypto assets um, in mind at all. And so there are things in those national instruments that you can't really comply with. And so in order to be regulated as a securities dealer at this point, you need to understand what's being asked of you and to be able to ask for appropriate uh, exemptions to those requirements. Mm-hmm. And did that come about like when they, I think it was 3IQ that got mm-hmm. one of the first um, ETFs going? Is that what kind of got the ball rolling with the... Um, so I, I, I think that the truth of it is is a little bit more sinister than that. 3IQ, so 3IQ did a fabulous job. Um, they were already a securities dealer um, and, the, and they wanted to offer the Bitcoin fund and the Ontario Securities Commission had said, no, you can't offer this to retail. Uh, and, and 3IQ and the law firm representing them, which was Osler, which is one of my favorite law firms in Canada, they're phenomenal. Um, just did did a really great job. I don't want to say beating up the OSC, um, but but essentially um, bringing the case before a court to say no, it makes sense to be able to offer um, this fund to retail investors, and that and that was really the argument that you shouldn't have to be an accredited investor. That there could be appropriate safeguards um, in place, and now we have a number of different Bitcoin funds, you know, Ethereum funds. We have we have ETFs. Um, so I, th- I think that's one of the places where Canada has done a really great job. Mm-hmm, I agree. Yeah. But when you said it's a little more sinister of why, why they gave oh, the deal. Why, why, yeah. Why do we have custodial exchanges that are regulated? Um, I, I think that's a little bit more of a, a um, knock on effect of situations like the Quadriga meltdown, um, mm. where specifically there was the idea that if you're custodying these assets and, and these assets aren't, you know, just something that's being used to make a payment or, or do an over-the-counter trade, but you're holding these assets long-term on behalf of retail investors, there has to be some type of protection for the retail investor. And I think that was the approach that the Canadian securities regulators took as they looked at it and said, well, you know, th- these crypto assets are being offered not through funds and not through securities dealers like through IQ, uh, but, but they're just being offered to retail investors um, in a way where they're actually being custodied. Uh, by the companies that are offering them, and there's not oversight over those things. So, if somebody is holding on to these assets on behalf of customers, um, is you know, is there something that we can do to bring them under the auspices of that regime? Hmm. Hmm. And yeah. And I mean, the Quadriga thing was quite a quite a fiasco a couple years ago, and we've seen people get burned over and over on crypto exchanges. So it's you know not your keys, not your coins. And I guess if if someone is holding you know millions or billions of dollars of centralized crypto, maybe it's not the worst thing that they have to go, undergo uh, you know dual red, registration there. But I, I know and, a lot of people. And this is the argument that they put forward: that. is is that if. Um, you know, if I'm holding your crypto and what you see is like a, you know, a balance on a screen that's not something on the blockchain, like really what I'm giving giving you is is a promissory note. It's something that has a lot more resemblance to a security that's held on your behalf than it does to something that you're self-custodying. And, and this is why there's that differentiation between 
the services that offer immediate delivery of the crypto and the services that don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, that that's a great overview for what's happening now. So can you give us kind of a little overview of what what is going on with the Freedom Convoy? And like, you know, we heard initially of the funds being, you know, frozen from from different various crowdfunding sites. And uh, can you give us a little background on what what's happening there? Yeah. So so I think that's been interesting um, as it developed and and I and I think this is something that we're still seeing developing um, there is a lot of misinformation so in so much as it's possible for people I would say you know t- take a look at source documents take a look at um, the actual publications in terms of what the orders are um, they're they're out there this is a fun annotated version that I will refer to if you wonder what the paper flipping sound is um, that's me being old school in my note-taking um, <laughs> But initially, there was uh, fundraising that was done, um, and it was done via, uh, you know, traditional fiat um, crowdfunding platforms. Um, the crowdfunding platform initially, I think, was GoFundMe. Um, and, and my understanding is that there was outreach um, from, from law enforcement and from different parties and GoFundMe made the decision to just return the funds and refund the donors. I think that that's sort of an important part of, of this story because there's all of the, this different narrative that they had seized the funds, that you know that the funds were directed somewhere else, but that's not what happened. Um, what, what happened is that uh, the, the money was refunded to the donors. And so people who donated to that um, got the money back. Um, another um, fiat-based crowdfunding platform had had stepped up and and like there was a you know very well publicized fundraising campaign on that platform similar uh, you know occurrence in terms of they were told hey you have to freeze the funds and you can't distribute the funds um there was a bitcoin fundraising effort um that was um, that had happened that had raised a, a phenomenal amount of funds as well um, and that that brings us to where we stand today, which is that Canada has enacted the Emergency Measures Act. Um, and th- so this is where I'm saying it's important to look at source and, and what's actually there, because the regulations um, under the Emergency Measures Act were published. They're online. They're viewable by anyone. Um, they were they were published at 930 last night. So there, up until that point, there was a lot of statements from government and everybody scrambling, trying to figure out what that meant um, and what we all actually had had to do. And I think there's still going to be more clarity about that um, in the coming days. Um, there, there are a lot of questions in terms of whether or not the Emergency Measures Act should have been enacted. Um, I, I think there are checks and balances in place around that. So it'll be interesting to see how that piece plays out. Um, my running joke on that is that that is beyond my pay grade. Uh, but but I, I do think that there there are folks that are looking at that from various angles. Um, in the meantime, for those of us that are running businesses that are affected by this, um, I, I think that it's really important to understand the text of what these regulations are saying and what the intent is. Uh, one of the things that I will say at the outset um, is, is that the idea is that these measures are temporary. And so... Mm. These, How long these, are they in place for? Thirty days. Okay. Yeah, thir- thirty days, and I and I mean I I imagine that there are 
mechanisms to extend that if they need to be extended. I, I'm going to assume that everybody hopes that that's not the case um, in, in that these are pretty extraordinary measures and, and they're, they're measures that we haven't seen in Canada for a long time. So the, so the Emergency Measures Act was previously called the War Act um, to, to, like, to give you a sense of the gravity of these type of measures and, and the unusualness of these type of measures. I mean, it's it's been a generation since we've seen anything like this. Um, so I, I think there are definitely a lot of legal scholars that are scrambling as as to the meaning and the gravitas of the thing. What um, are some of the key you know key measures that are that are written in there? Yeah. So so one of the first things that I want to say in, you know, in terms of what they talk about in the proclamation, they don't talk about protests. And, and I think that's an important distinction. They do talk about uh, the continuing blockades. So they're talking about blockades um, of motor vehicles um, and, you know, and individuals that are blocking things like critical infrastructure um, that are that are blocking access to international bridges. Um, so there, there is, I think, a distinction between I, I am stopping traffic from crossing um, at an international border crossing and I am standing in front of the parliament building with a sign. And, and I think that needs to be clear just in terms of what they're talking about and the gravitas of those actions. Um, and, and they talk about you know, adverse effects to the Canadian economy, breakdown of supply chain. Uh, potential for an increase in the levels of unrest and violence, and and so this is sort of in in the the proclamation of why are why are these extraordinary measures being enacted? Um, has has there been any violence so far in this in this freedom convoy? Um, I don't have an exact statistic on that, and and so it's difficult to comment. Um, there's been some some footage of, of various things, and I think in, in a situation like this, um, it gets very difficult to fact check. Um, and so there, there are things like footage that is allegedly um, a couple of individuals, and it looks like they're trying to set fire to a building in Ottawa, and they've um, taped the door, and, and fortunately the fire gets put out. Um, I, I think there's been skirmishes. I have to preface, um, Canada, generally speaking, is, is like a different beast in terms of violence, um, you know, maybe beyond bar fights in Northern Ontario, where I grew up. Um, it's, it's not, um, you know, a- acts of mass violence, riots, things like that would be really shocking here. It, it's not part of our culture. It's not part of our DNA. Um, and it's not something that we've seen. Um, at one of the, the blockades in Alberta, there, there's a lot of images that uh, the police have published of a number of weapons that were seized. Um, so I think that when we talk about the potential for violence um, versus, versus actual violence, um, you know, have, have we seen, I don't want to call them like U- U.S. style violence, but I, but I think the U.S. has seen some, some very violent um, you know, things that started off as, as protest actions that, that became more like violent riots type of actions. Oh, yeah. I was um, living and, in and we haven't seen that. During those George Floyd uh, riots, I was living, we moved like during, in the middle of it, we moved to Florida because it was just getting crazy. But uh, 
but yeah, it was a, as a Canadian, it was it was. I know it's a lot different of a culture of you know what what happens at those, and even the a lot of people thought that it was. Um, you know, possibly being the people doing the violence were wearing, you know, distinct outfits that maybe they were being paid to incite violence or I don't know. It's a whole a whole weird thing of like who's who's instigating the violence. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of different um, theories about what what those factions might be. Um, I, I think whenever there is a big gathering there's the there's the potential for that and there's the potential for the type of person who maybe isn't part of the core action that will just show up because it gives them the, the cover to just be an asshole essentially yeah. um, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the core of what that action or, or what that protest might be about um, but that doesn't change the potential for that thing. Yeah. And I, I think when you look at what the government has said in media, they're very care like they're they're very, very careful not to say protest. So that's not the characterization that they're giving this action. Um, but the word blockade comes up again and again and again. So blockade comes up um, in the regulation related to the Emergency Measures Act. It comes up in what the Prime Minister has said, it comes up what the Minister of Finance has said. Um, it, it comes up um, in Public Safety Canada's um, publication about it. And, and so I think that's one of the things to be very cognizant of uh, is that that characterization and the pieces of it that are actually at issue. Now, we get into a really interesting thing in that I think it's really hard to separate at this point um, the the difference between protest versus blockade and so unfortunately when you're a bank if you're a money service business if you're if you're any type of regulated bit business and and that's going to include bitcoin exchanges um you can't transmit funds to any of these things at at this point in time um i i think there may be some future point where maybe the protests you know, there, there are protests that aren't doing the things that are at issue, um, where maybe we'll see some of those funds freed up, maybe we'll see those funds returned to donors. Um, but for now, we're in a situation where the requirement is is really that those are frozen. And, and frozen doesn't mean seized. So there, and I, and I have to make that clear. So we're not talking about, again, a situation where um, at this point, there's any type of civil asset forfeiture. Um, so it's not the government is not taking money and saying you can never have it back. If, if I were a betting person, I think a far more likely outcome is that we're going to see things like what happened with GoFundMe, where the answer is that gets returned to donors to the extent that it's possible to do so. Um, I, I do think that in cases where, you know, where things get distributed, Sometimes people are putting themselves in pretty actionable positions, uh, just in, in terms of there potentially being charges. Um, and those, those are actually pretty sweeping. And it was interesting to me the types of things that are in there as potentially um, separate uh, offenses when you look at the way that the regulations are written. So. There's a prohibition, uh, not against all public assembly, 
But talking about anything, so if there's a serious disruption to the movement of persons or goods or a serious interference with trade, so again, there we're talking about things like the blockading of the international bridges, blockading of any access to critical infrastructure, um, and, and that's the second point is interference with the functioning of critical infrastructure. And they give a very clear, you know, here, here's um, six points of what critical infrastructure is. So we're talking about things like airports, hospitals, utilities, power generation, uh, trade corridors. So it's pretty well defined here in terms of what's not to be disrupted. Um, and, and the idea that is, is that there's a prohibition against assembly um, that's intended to disrupt those things. Um, and, and the final point of that is the support or threat of use um, of acts of serious violence against persons or property. Um, and, and I think the concept of violence against property gets interesting in that that's one of the things that there has been some footage of. Um, although, although again, we, it's not like we've seen um, a lot of like bricks through the windows of local businesses and, and things that have happened in other contexts. Um, in, in so much as just kind of shocking and icky footage of, you know, the, the desecration of a war monument um, and, and those types of things um, that didn't to me, in terms of what I saw, look like permanent damage, um, but still not something that sat well. Um, now, there's a separate offense. So uh, you can't cause, uh, you must not cause a person under the ears of 18 years of age to participate, uh, which is to say that um, it, you know, you're part of a blockade, there's one offense, you brought your child, there's a second offense added on to it, uh, because you're causing that person who's a minor to participate. Um, so I guess so we know where that one comes from, like the, all of what happened in Kenosha, you know, the, um, yeah, so... But a lot of people, I thought, I think, got upset by that under 18 thing saying, I want to bring my family. And they had like bouncy houses at the, you know, at the Ottawa downtown area where everyone's like kind of the footage I've seen is of people like dancing. <laughs> you know, it, it yeah, looks like, like hot tubs. And... <laughs> but I guess it's, they're saying it's different at the blockade of the bridge versus um, the parliament building. And I, and I think you get into some di some different things even in Ottawa. So I, I have a lot of empathy for folks that um, that live in those neighborhoods, and in, and in some cases are you know are afraid to leave their houses or have a baby that hasn't slept in days because there is constant yeah. um, horn honking and and I and those things seem minor compared to things like uh, bricks through a window or gun violence. But but I think they're still very unpleasant for the people that are there and dealing with them. Um, so it's it's interesting to see the way that those things play out. And if you have people that are essentially not able to leave their their own neighborhood in, in a meaningful way, then that's, you know, you get into how much are you disrupting these people's access to critical infrastructure? Um, if that's been a constant in their lives. I, and, and this isn't AML specific, but I think there's also something that's fascinatingly classist um, that happens with things like that in that um, were it my neighborhood, I would probably pack up my, my dogs and, and my cat and my partner. 
um, and be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But not everyone has that option. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting as you know as we continue into these things happening. Um, but as I'm gonna I'm gonna just jump if I can to the financial services measures um, sure, that, yeah. that are in here. So we talk about um, a, you know one of the definitions is a designated person. So um, they define that as any entity or individual that's engaged directly or indirectly in any of the prohibited activities that are discussed. Um, and the obligation then is to cease dealing. So not dealing in property, not facilitating any transactions, not making available property, including funds and virtual currency, um, not providing related financial services. Um, and, and this gets really interesting to me because the, there's also the inclusion of insurance. So there's the idea that, um, you know, let like let's say my insurance company dumped me because I'm part of this blockade, which is a thing that, as I understand it, has happened in a couple of cases. There's like a prohibition against a new insurance company um, insuring you while you're doing this activity. Well, um, insurance companies have all kinds of a they they have all kinds of weird rules of like when they'll you know pay out so that it's it surprised me at first but it's like a, it's a weird industry for all of their exclusions and weird um you oh. know exceptions yeah oh yeah like if you're they'll participating put, in a riot your life insurance probably doesn't them a cover you not to pay out like oh well you were at the blockade or you were at suspected at this one thing no 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 payment for you um yeah, I even saw one supporter of all this measure saying that people who are participating in it shouldn't be allowed to own stocks in companies anymore. The company should have a right to choose who their stockholders are based on their you know, views. And so it's like, oh, my God, what kind of world are we getting to? I, I, I think we're going to end up with some some really interesting lawsuits um, when this yeah. all winds down. Um, some some of the pieces I've seen now it's it's hard to tell how much is you know is really substantiated and I think something would have to work its way through a court or a tribunal, uh, but there have been reports of people losing their employment because they've been part of these leaked donor lists, um, and and I think that's one of the things that um, if that is the case and and that's the sole reason that that person lost their employment, um, they've probably got a decent case and and should probably seek some legal advice on that uh, particularly if they were donating um, to something before there were any of these emergency measures acts yeah because there wouldn't have been any notice to them that uh, that this was a problem and exactly mm-hmm. it sounds almost like they've just created an OFAC list you know in in Canada but the, the, I think the criteria of getting on an OFAC list is possibly quite a bit higher than the bar here of like what 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 makes someone a you know a problem in this is it that they're out with a sign and their family in a bouncy house saying we don't support vaccine you know forced medicine on people or um or is it only the people that are you know blocking traffic and you know blocking the bridge so And and this is something that I think gets really interesting that that industry is struggling with. Um, The the other piece is that when you're talking about 
individuals, um, you're you're right. There there is a pretty high standard in in generally having someone listed as an individual. There there is the idea that there there is some sort of crime that there is strong enough evidence of that, um, and and so this becomes interesting. Um, I think with the donation platforms, there's a there's a pretty easy argument to say, well, you know, we can't say that that this funding will, won't go to a blockade, and so we're asking that that be frozen for the time being. Um, and I think with individual accounts, it gets a lot more difficult. Uh, there, there's also the circumstances under which you're able to exchange personal information or not. And so I, I think this gets particularly interesting in that when you're talking about fundraising, um, for instance, law enforcement can circulate a list of virtual currency addresses and say, we think these virtual currency addresses um, are problematic. Um, and, and there's no personal information there. This is a really powerful tool um, that I think we all in the crypto industry love when it's related to something like a scam. So, it, you know, if you can say, hey, I've, I've been scammed and this is the scammer's address and keep an eye on this address and you can do that without exchanging any personal information, that's, that's such a cool and powerful tool. Um, and, and tools that work really well in situations that we're in favor of also work really well in situations that we're, we might be less in favor of. And so I think this is uncomfortable for a lot of the exchanges right now as they figure out, you know, what their responsibility is. Um, yeah, like how many hops from, oh, so they block, was it 34 Bitcoin addresses or like one ETH and one Cardano address so far? At least that's what I saw on Twitter. I, I didn't, I don't know if that's verified, but, um, you know, they, they, you know, took some Bitcoin addresses and said, you can't do, you can't transact with those, but well, you know, how many, okay, what if the person goes to a coin join, then can the exchange transact with it? Or does the exchange have to say, Oh, actually, we don't want to work with anyone that's come from a coin join in case they are one of these people or like, where does that line uh, fall? I, I, th I think it's really a case by case basis and it depends on the exchanges risk tolerance. You'll, you'll have um, and, and the tools that they have at their disposal. But that's something that you're generally seeing already where when I send something, um, you know, to an exchange, they're assessing where that's coming from. They're using those analytics tools. Um, they're looking at it to see that this isn't coming from a theft or a hack or ransomware and, and those type of things. And so the, this becomes another layer. Um, and the idea is at this point, if they make the determination, so if the exchange says within reason, I, I think that's what this is, then you get into a case where the exchange has an obligation to report um, and and they have an obligation to freeze those assets, and and mm -hmm. I don't know what will happen to those to those assets at the point of freezing. So this this is where I say I think eventually the answer will be returned to sender, but in the interim we're dealing with these. Well, you know now we have to freeze this, and and none of us are really sure how long we have to freeze it for, what happens to it, or what we do with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I, happens like. Um, so say they do go as far as saying like, okay, the government goes as far to say we're going to implement civil asset forfeiture procedures here. How would they, how would they do that? Like, how hard would it be for them to go to that measure? I think civil asset forfeiture procedures would actually be um, really difficult. 
because what you're talking about usually in a case of civil asset forfeiture is that you're dealing with proceeds of crime. Um, so, so usually the answer to that is that the onus um, is on uh, the agency doing the civil asset forfeiture, so, so the police and the Crown, um, to show that the asset that they're seizing um, on the balance of probabilities, so it's a different standard, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, it's balance of probabilities. So yeah, that probably came from crime. Um, and, and I don't think you can do that in a meaningful way in this case, because what you very clearly have is that um, there, there was a fundraiser um, and, and at the time of the fundraiser, you know, people think they're donating funds, um, you know, that's related to legal protest activity. And so, like I said, it, at least until the point where there's been that um, emergency order or, you know, or possibly if there are things where they can show, yes, this is specifically related to a, you know, to a blockade as, as opposed to, um, to protest activity. And I, I haven't done a detailed academic review, um, uh, you know, of all of the fundraising pages and and like what, what all of the fundraising pages are saying. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and make an educated guess that there weren't, um, to a significant extent, fundraising pages that said, yes, let's block bridges and interrupt trade and incite violence. I'd like, I don't mm-hmm. think that was there. I, I think mostly what these talked about was um, with, you know, within the context of su- supporting what was believed to be a legal, peaceful protest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think so, too. I think it n- now that I'm talking with you, I'm feeling a little bit more calm about it, actually, that it is ju- it's not that every person that's there in Ottawa with a sign is the target of this thing, that it's more just targeted at blockades. But it still seems like, in my opinion, the easier uh way would be to just you know get rid of some of these harsh or cruel mandates and let everyone go home and get on with their lives rather than going to this extent with it but that's you know the uh, so and and this is sort of the interesting thing that's happened across the country in in the interim is that um a lot of those things are provincial matters so so there's a lot of those mandates that aren't even federal matters um, and on a, on a provincial basis, you're seeing a lifting of all, and, and we were seeing a lifting of a lot of these mandates before the beginning of the protests. Um, there's a statistic from university sociology that I'm probably going to misquote the heck out of right now. Um, but it's, but it's always stuck with me and that it's, uh, it, it's that prison riots are always more common at a point in time where conditions in the prison system are improving. Hmm. Um, and and that, that, seems, that seems really counterintuitive. I don't know why that is either. There, there was a bunch of theories. I don't remember any of the theories, and I think none of them made sense to me. But, but I remember that stat really clearly as being like, huh, you know, there's something really fascinating and counterintuitive about that. Um, and, and I think we, you know, we are at a at a point where a lot of the mandates are being lifted, um, the the conversation around things um, is is shifting. 
I think I read recently that we're at a 90% vaccination rate. So, so there, there's all of these really interesting factors. Um, but I, I think if I were to, to look at it, um, I, I hope that we don't need these emergency measures, um, for, you know, for 30 days. My, my sincere hope, um, is that there is a serious analysis on the part of people who are organizing protests who are leading this type of activity to say, okay, let's not do the problematic illegal things. Let's make sure that there is access to infrastructure. Let's make sure that we're not um, blockading bridges or, or cutting off access to critical infrastructure. Um, and, and let's be reasonable um, and, and withdraw from these areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> obviously, I'm not there. I'm finding it so hard to understand what the truth is. Like, I feel like the news these days has been um, just corrupted on both sides. That you get these extreme point of views, and sometimes I go down these dark rabbit holes where I start. <laughs> but then, then you realize it's like, oh, that's not actually true. Like in the morning after, you know, my 2 a.m. telegram, like, uh, you know, binges on these uh, articles and, uh, you know, these random news sites that uh, have popped up now. Um, it's it, So uh, I saw one picture of a bunch of phones saying, okay, here's a blockade. They put a bunch of phones on a bridge and, you know, Google Maps shows that the bridge is, uh, you know, blocked. But I I believe the real the bridge really was blocked there, but it is it is pretty scary all the things you can do with technology now. Like just by putting a hundred phones on a bridge, it, a place can report, oh, this bridge is currently being blocked because uh, you know all the phones there show congestion. So it's uh, it's it's just weird what they can do with technology. But also one of the things you know is it who so. Who sponsored all this money too? Like, where did it come from? Who were? I heard there was some stat that a lot of it came from outside Canada, and I, I think my own personal view is probably a lot of people have been watching Canada in horror over the last uh, year with all these like it's kind of like Australia, like it just really. Um, you know, harsh lockdowns compared to a lot of other places in the year. And I think a lot of people were just like, hey, good for you guys, you know, getting together and, and trying to fight back on this. But I, I heard other news, you know, places saying like, oh, it's, uh, you know, just questioning why is this money coming from outside the country? And, uh, and that could be part of what's made the government like very nervous of it. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we won't know that um, until there's been a, a better post hoc forensic analysis. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's something that we've seen in the in the politics of every country in recent years to an uncomfortable extent where there are um, outside influences. So influences from from outside the country, your you know, your country, my country, every country that I'm aware of um, that that are really attempting to um, so distant and destabilize. And so, I, do, you know, do I think on the part of the, of the government that there's a, a, you know, a fear that that's occurring? Absolutely. Um, is, is that what's occurring? 
I don't know. Um, that that's a that is probably a question for CSIS or the RCMP, um, yeah. and and certainly not something uh, that I, as a lowly AML geek, would have access to. But but I'm open to the possibility that that's part of the threat model that they're responding to, um, and and part of why this might seem really harsh and horrifying to me. Um, because I don't necessarily understand the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So, so in general, what what is like a suspicious activity in in on an exchange or like how does a crypto company deem something suspicious? And what does this new act, you know, how how do the how does that change what people's consideration of a suspicious activity report or the the trigger to file one? Yeah. So, so I mean, normally the threshold for a suspicious activity report is really low. So, so it's that you'd have reasonable grounds to suspect that a transaction is related to any sort of money laundering or terrorist financing effect, uh, offense um, or any sort of underlying criminal offense. So, you know, fraud, um, theft, so any, anything where you think this financial transaction is somehow related to a crime. Um, you don't have to know what the crime is. You know, it, it's enough that you look at it and it just doesn't make sense. Um, mm-hmm. And and the threshold in Canada is a little bit different than in the U.S. in that we don't have a de minimis exemption. So there's no um, dollar value at which this isn't reportable if you're a reporting entity. Um, like I could come in and do a $10 transaction and be like, I want to buy $10 worth in Bitcoin because I need to go get some Rohypnol from the dark web. Reportable. Um, because mm-hmm. there's, there's just like there's no dollar threshold. Um, in fact, in that scenario, if you say, you know what, I'm not going to sell you any Bitcoin, you're shady, please leave. Um, that is still reportable as an attempted suspicious transaction. So that's, I think, really important context when we look at it and say then, okay, is the activity related to a blockade? Um, so if it, you know, if it's related to any of these addresses that have been posted publicly, um, that you know is related to fundraising, I, you know, I, I think you're in reportable territory. I, th- I think you're in duty to freeze territory. Um, if, if How would you is- know if it's, if it's for a blockade unless someone comes in and says, hey, I was uh, using this money as part of the Freedom Convoy blockade. It, it, no one's really going to say that. So then you've got to make a decision of... You, you, it- you, say, that, you say that and yet... Um, no, I, I, so I think one of the things um, that's happened and, and where people have been turned away in terms of transactions is that um, as the emergency measures came out and, and there was uncertainty around it, one of the things that happened is that there were cases where people came and said like, hey, uh, we'd like to do this transaction, but we're not sure if you're going to be comfortable with it. You know, so, okay. so we'd like to cash out or, or, or like we'd like to do various things. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting thing, particularly within the crypto community, um, is, is there's like sometimes a lot of information disclosure and, and a lot of, um, fraternity. So, so the idea that they want to be clear about what they're doing, um, and they want to do those transactions, um, with someone who's going to be comfortable with that transaction. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that's the case all of the time, um, but a couple of those situations uh, have definitely come up. And what about uh, for for non-custodial solutions? Like, it, it, I think it, this is almost like a push, you know, towards 
that for anyone that wants to not have the risk of their money getting frozen for, you know, the suspicion that they might be partaking in a, you know, something like a blockade, if they're using non-custodial wallets, there's really no way, like, to me, it seems like all crowdfunding should always be done, you know, just a straight Bitcoin address and no one can ever touch it or mess with it. Um, so, so this is one of the interesting things that's that's come up in the, you know, in the Emergency uh, Measures Act and the regulations around it is they've actually said so crowdfunding platforms, including platforms that are set up to raise virtual currency, um, now have a duty. In, in this regard, where crowdfunding so platforms website. are, yeah, they're not usually covered as, as money services businesses. Um, but but if you're setting up some sort of website or, or platform um, for the purpose of crowdfunding, um, then you would now be covered. And and this is this part where crowdfunding platforms don't usually have to register with FinTrack, um, but certainly for the next 30 days they do. Um, similarly, payment service providers that provide payment services um, to crowdfunding platforms. So that that piece of it is fascinating because I think if you're if you're a crowdfunding platform uh, that you're scrambling to figure this out at this point, there's now a registration to open on FinTrack's website. Um, there there's reporting that's starting to open up and be available to them, and there's an expectation to report. But these aren't platforms that have had to report historically. So I, I imagine there's a big scramble to just figure out, you know, are are we dealing with funds that we need to be concerned about? And what do we do? And conversations happening um, with CSIS and the RCMP to say, OK, we've frozen the funds. Like, what what do we do at this point? And, and what do we tell people at this point? Um, and, and I think that's happening with all financial institutions. So I don't I don't think this is a crypto specific issue. I, I think any of the entity types that are covered here are dealing with that. Um, and then from a payment service provider perspective, you know, there's do you provide services um, to crowdfunding platforms or like to anything that could be used in this way. So there, there's really a nuanced analysis that has to happen about could we have touched this this type of transaction and, and then what happened. Mm-hmm. And the the worst, well, I, I don't want to, a lot of times when new regulations and stuff come out, what I've seen is people get scared of it and then they over comply or like they do too much, like they don't want to risk their, their own business getting shut down or being seen in a negative light. So they, you know, go much further than they need to with, with some of their, their measures too. So maybe that's like... Uh, websites that are hosting the crowdfunding or like Amazon Web Services could uh, like all eventually just say, oh, we're not going to put your site on the Internet or it could get really, you know, this could reach further, I guess, than just, you know, the the crowdfunding itself when you the way the way it sounds like it's written. And and I hope that we don't get to this to this point. Um, and and this is where I say like I'm I am very much fingers crossed that this situation um, will resolve itself and and that people will collaborate um, and and stop doing the things that are the the bridge blockades and things like that and and sort of just remove the source of what's perceived as the necessity of the Emergency Measures Act. Um, but but you're right I I do think in the interim we're going to see. 
um, institutions take a, a pretty conservative view on some of these things. Um, where I'm worried most about that is is the piece that you mentioned in terms of, you know, if, if there's an individual that's that's been um, on, you know, in Ottawa at protests, um, you know, and, and on social media and vocal about that, um, what does that look like? And, and I think there's a lot of discussion about that um, because there there's unpleasant consequences. So if you freeze an individual's bank account, um, you're you're dealing with someone that is missing rent payments and mortgage payments uh, and needs, you know, and needs to buy food and needs to access the necessities of life. Um, and I don't think that's the intent of any of this. You know, the like the intent isn't that it's going to um, harm a Canadian whose whose intention was just to, you know, attend a peaceful protest or donate to a peaceful protest. So I think that we do need to be cautious um, in that regard. And, and at the same time, if you're a regulated entity and if you're an entity that's covered by this act um, and by these requirements, regardless of your personal political views, you do have to think about the impact um, to your business. You do have to think about um, what that means from a long-term perspective. And so it's it's a balancing act. Did it, does it have fines for non-compliance? Um, it does. So the, um, the penalties range from there. There's both the possibility um, of there being a fine. So um, there, there's two paths. So there's summary conviction um, or there is indictment. So not so serious and, and quite serious. Um, and so for the summary conviction, it's a fine not exceeding $500 or imprisonment uh, not exceeding six months or both. Um, and then for indictment, it's a fine not exceeding $5,000 or imprisonment not to include, not to um, exceed five years or both. So, yeah, I, I mean, there, there is, there is, I think the possibility for, for that to be pretty serious. I, I think there's, for most people, a $500 fine isn't life ruining. Um, but, uh, you know, but, having all but, your, if your bank account, it, so I think what the fear yeah. on Twitter was, is that like, oh, if, if you're deemed someone that was maybe just attending the, the protest, then your bank is going to freeze all your assets and you're never going to be able to transact. Like if you're using custodial crypto services, you're not going to be able to move it into your bank account ever. So you can't get it off those platforms. You've lost your Bitcoin. You've lost your bank account. You're, you know, you're probably going to lose your family and starve to death at all because of this. You know, like no that's, one wants that. that's what it looks like. But I think, it, you know, as we've talked it through, it's 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 much narrower of a scope than a than that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think that other than in, in the most egregious of cases, we're going to see anything that, that looks like civil asset forfeiture. Um, <clears throat> I, I think for the most part, we'll see, um, for, you know, freezing orders. So I, I do think we're going to see funds that are frozen. We're going to see crypto that's being frozen. Um, I expect that that will be temporary and and I expect that for the most part, we're going to see essentially a return to sender type pattern 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how it is here. You know, um, I even lost my bank account, my law firm's bank account a couple of years ago um, it, due to like they have the, you know, Operation Choke Point, which was supposedly ended in 2018. But, it, you know, you just, they just wouldn't offer services to certain um, certain type of industries, crypto being one of them or payment processors. Um, you know, there were about 18 industries, but uh, but they return the money they give you a 30-day notice and they say you know get your money somewhere else but it's not like oh we're keeping the money thanks you know and and i think that's what from the comments in general that i saw on twitter it was like and we we don't know exactly i don't think there has been you know clarity written of as you mentioned you know what does happen to it but most likely it's going to go back the same way that the gofundme money is just given back to the person that sent it or if the bank uh deems the person too too high risk then they're going to have to say you know take your money elsewhere but it's not going to be like uh you know that they keep the money themselves unless it is a really egregious thing where they have found that that person is interfering with the core infrastructures. This is exactly it. There just aren't grounds to do that. And and I think there's probably um, worth mentioning a difference in terms of um, what you're entitled to as an individual versus as a business. Um, because as, as a business, like there's no rights um, in the Canadian context in terms of access to banking. But as an individual, you have a right um, to access basic services, and and it, and it's just understood you need to um, have access to a basic banking services um, to reasonably exist within our society. And so, unless the bank thinks that you are doing something illegal at that point, and you know at that point in time, so they can say to me like, mm, you know what, this looks like a fraudulent check. We're not going to open a deposit account for you, um, for you to commit check fraud. Thank you. Um, bye. You know they don't have to give me that, or they can they can close my account in which I've done check fraud and been caught doing check fraud, and and it's been problematic. Um, but uh, um, the, you know the next day when I come in with like a legitimate check, um, then an account gets opened as as an individual, and and that's. I think important to note, um, we also have some very specific rules around the cashing of government checks. So specifically around, um, you know, payments that are related to disability um, or any social welfare programs where um, there there are required services related to that. And so if I'm if I'm coming in with a disability check, um, the bank can't refuse to cash that for me unless it's fraudulent or, you know, or they have, you know, reasons yeah. to Yeah, so where this is probably going to apply is if you come in with your government check and say, hey, I want to send this to the Freedom Convoy. Yeah, block they're not required to do that. That's not a basic you know, banking then they might say They'll still cash it, but they won't send it for you. That's, I think, where the, the line is. But, but just the emergency measures and everything does make it sound really, um, you know, creepy and uh and yeah. you know possibly really far-reaching but uh but it sounds like it is a little more uh manageable yeah and and i do, i so i don't think the intent here is that the account of anyone who's ever made a donation would be frozen as much as the accounts that are related to blockades the accounts that are related to raising money for the blockades would be frozen 
mm-hmm. and like those those aren't the same thing. How do you distinguish them, or how you know how is a bank supposed to distinguish that reasonably? Um, well, that, you know. and and that's difficult, and and we know that people tend to you know commingle accounts and use personal accounts for various things, and so it, yeah, we we may end up having some awkward cases. Um, but but I think an individual has a lot of leverage in terms of saying no, I I need my account to work for these purposes. Um, mm-hmm. Even thinking about you know times where accounts were legitimately frozen, um, I I remember being on vacation with Jonathan in New Orleans where he got pickpocketed, right? And and so we're out and he's like, oh that was my you know it was my bank card, my Visa, and all these things, and just going through and shutting down accounts, and then we were using my cards that aren't connected to him, but then like calling our bank and saying yeah we need you to shut down our account so that nothing happens. And um, if you can bounce everything except our mortgage payment, can you just let our mortgage payment happen? <laughs> and like everyone else will do, you know, we'll deal with their stuff later. So it, it was a really fascinating um, process. But but like there's a lot that that you can do in terms of having that conversation with your bank as an individual. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, well, this has been really fascinating. And uh, I think um helpful to understand the the limits of this and that it's not as as far-reaching as what the the Twitter um, you know headlines make it look like so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it Amber thank you oh thank Um, you for having me it's always a pleasure (laughs) is there any any parting words you want to give anyone about you know how to comply with this if they are a Canadian company that's you know that's impacted by it. Um, I so I mean I I think always like take a deep breath, stay calm, um, talk to your lawyers, talk to your advisors. Um, don't don't make rash decisions about it. I know that we all have a, a tendency to be feisty, but think about yourself and and your business in the long term. Very nice. And and where can people find you? Um, outliercanada.com and uh, at Outlier Canada on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.